Hi, I'm Susan. And this is Diane. And this is When Autumn Comes. Look, life sometimes just looks different than we thought it would. This is a podcast for mamas and for people who love them, whose lives were flipped upside down as a doctor looked into our eyes and explained our child's prognosis. Or for the mamas who get very little sleep as they face symptoms and behaviors that just aren't typical for other children. This is a place where we can take on this journey together because we know that this can be a sad, lonely, misunderstood path. But we also know that as colder temperatures and darker days begin to appear, so do the golden leaves and beautiful sunsets of autumn. We know that life comes in seasons. We know that in our world, 24 hours can hold so much change that it feels like four seasons in one day. We are here to let you share your story, let you laugh and let you cry, let you learn and let you grow together with other mothers when autumn comes. Today's guest is basically super mom, superwoman, super mom, super medical mom, super special needs mom, super mom of typical kids. Uh, she has four boys, y'all, four boys. And that alone makes her a super mom. Not only is she a mom of two typical boys, she is a mom of two special needs kids. One of the boys has an intellectual disability and one has a physical disability. So it's a very unique conversation we're about to have because I've always kind of wondered, like, how would I feel if, if this was only, quote unquote, a physical disability, or if this was only, quote unquote, an intellectual disability, how would I feel? And she has a very unique perspective because she has both in her home. And her coping mechanism is baking. So like, I, I just, mm, I wish we could do this episode in person and everybody gather at her, her bakery because guys, like we, we would have some of the best cake pops to get through this episode and we could just sit here and sip coffee and eat cake pops and talk about all things medical moms need to talk about. Welcome, Kimberly. Welcome back, everybody. I'm really, really excited for today's guest. Today we have on Kimberly, and she is a mom of four, I'm assuming rambunctious boys, um, and she lives here in Minnesota. Welcome, Kimberly. Hello. Kim, can you tell us a little bit? Of, you have a really unique family. You have a beautiful family, but a very unique family, and I'm so excited to talk about just everybody in your family, but specifically your two boys. Can you tell us a little bit about the dynamic in your family? Yeah, so I have four boys, ranging in ages from almost 12 to almost five here. When my oldest was two, he was diagnosed with autism, so we have an autism diagnosis. Um, and then we had two more children in between, and then our last son, when we were 20 weeks pregnant, we found out he had a cleft lip and cleft palate, and something else. And they didn't know what it was. So for 20 weeks, we kind of waited around to find out what it would be. So I think I looked up like every syndrome oh my book. <laughs> goodness. You know, and I did the amniocentesis and all of the chromosomal testing and all those things that you guys have been through probably. And then when he was born, we found out he had amniotic band syndrome, which to us was a huge relief. To other people, it might be scary, but compared to what we thought 
we would end up with, yeah, it was kind of a blessing. So when the whole Google is at your fingertips yeah. and it could be <laughs> a million different things, you're like, phew. I'm a well-informed mother of chromosomal disorders. Let's just yeah. say. <laughs> All y'all can go to Kim if you have any questions. She's we like, don't need a Google's geneticist. <laughs> yeah. We have our so own in-house. <laughs> the geneticist used to call me like every week when the test would come back. Well, it's not this or this or this. And then we'd be like, well, is it this or this or this? <laughs> yeah. So something else um, that I'm really excited to talk to you about is you you currently stay at home and run a little bakery, which is if you could ship, I would give you a shout out. I don't do you don't ship, do you? I can't, yeah. Oh my gosh. You guys, her stuff, just find her on Facebook or social media because her stuff is phenomenal. It's called Little Nuggets Bakery. Okay. Um but you used to be a former special ed teacher, correct? Mm-hmm. Actually in Chaska, really close to you. Oh, very cool. I never knew yeah. that. So I'm really excited to kind of discuss all of these things, but um Let's talk about your boys. Let's, yeah, let's dive in first with what is trending in your house right now. Yeah. Are they are <laughs> <That's> they <laughs> sus? You're so sus. That's what's trending in my house right are now. Are you kidding? <laughs> <laughs> I have a 12-year-old, so um, oh my goodness. Let's see. My youngest is in love with like plushies. Like, do you guys have the plushies? Like, they're no. just plushies, like, everywhere in our house, little stuffed animals. Like, that's what Andrew's really into right now. Um, and fighting with his brothers. Yeah, I like to wrestle. It's great. My <laughs> oldest is in middle school. And so he's kind of entering that stage of he's just like mad a lot. And um, we're not cool anymore, which is fine. <laughs> it's all good. <laughs> Newsflash, you're pretty, you're pretty cool. What's funny about that is that something like that where people would be like, oh, my teenager, they're like crazy. Mm-hmm. I can't get along with them. Like for me, I'm like, oh my God, that's normal. I love it. Mm-hmm. Like be more angry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sit in your room, room longer. Like it's good. <laughs> you know, that's a normal teenage emotion. And that's awesome, you know, for me to see. Yeah. So the two in the middle, you know, every kid has their own stuff. It's not, you know, like the other, we say that my bookends or whatever have this and that, but the ones, in the, they have their own stuff too. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. it's, you just don't worry about it or stress about it as much or point it out. So yeah, it's just crazy and loud all the time here, all the time. Oh, I, I imagine. can imagine. Like, <laughs> is it smelly it smell? at some point? Yeah. Um, we haven't reached the smelly point yet, but Ooh. I'm sure we'll get there. Like it'll get there. Yeah. You got to waft in the smell of the baked goods. So yeah. that overpowers the smell of boys. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Let's first dive in with, in your case, it's very interesting. I have had, have, I don't, I'm still navigating what to say if I have two kids. I have two kids, but I only have one here. Both of mine had the same disability. In your case, they're very different disabilities or physical and intellectual disabilities. Yeah. How was it when you received Max's diagnosis compared to when you got the news about Andrew? I feel like it wasn't like this certain diagnosis that you can tell people and they're like, oh, okay. My husband and I are both educators. I was a special ed teacher. You would think that we would have noticed all the little signs Um, leading up to at age two, him just being so frustrated with not being able to use his words and just screaming all the time. That's kind of like when I finally let, I think we don't let ourselves go there. I don't know 
It must just mm-hmm. be something our brain does to cope. So when he was finally diagnosed and we started telling people, people were always questioned like, oh, are you sure? Always oh, only two. Like some kids don't talk till three. Maybe you should have reevaluated. That No, that can't be right. You know, like everybody had this kind of like, maybe it was their way of dealing with it. I don't know. And they want to make you like feel better, I'm sure, right? Right. And so it was really hard to convince people that we were, that no, this is happening. Like this really is what's going on. And then with autism, there's not like this, oh, here's how you treat it. Right. <laughs> you know, like it, there's not really this set in stone, like every kid is so different and on a spectrum So it was hard to know like exactly, okay, where do we go from here? You know, and then to get people to buy into it with us. And buy into it, quote unquote, (laughs) like that just, it hurts my heart. Like, how did you feel when people were saying, uh, like your friends and family, for example, I mean, without throwing them under the bus, here we go. Um, um, Hurtful kind of Mm -hmm. as if I, as a mom didn't, like, I want my kid to have this. Like you think I you think I want to make this up? Like, I don't want this to be happening. Um, yeah. So that was hard. I think too, I vividly remember and in all fairness to outsiders looking in, I think it comes from a genuine concern for your heart, right? Like, no, I, you know, there are a lot, they, they try and make it like, don't worry so much because I think there are a lot of kids like that. And I remember, expressing a lot of these things. And I mean, I would express them to people that I knew that were in the medical field and they were like, no, every kid's different. And you feel, I mean, I almost feel like it's the beginning of your advocacy journey of Mm -hmm. no, something is not right. Yeah. And you question yourself, but you're still like, okay, I hear what you're saying to me, but it's not, you don't know. And so I think it comes from a place of love, but you almost feel like undermined as a parent, like, and then you start to second guess yourself, but you have this gut instinct and it's just all sorts of. Yeah. And with an autism diagnosis, some of that is um, at age two, especially is behavior. And so then you're being judged as a parent, like in the grocery store, you know, if I told my kid they couldn't have the sucker that they're handing out and he knew that he got a sucker every single time. And I told him no. And he like started fussing. I remember one time the cashier was, she was like, as a mom, you should really stick to what you say. <laughs> I was like, oh. um, give him the sucker so we can leave the store without a tantrum. Like, you have no idea what yeah. I, what's going on yeah. right now, you know? So just, like, all of the judge, like, when they're two, it's just so hard to show the, I don't know, to show the world, like, what's going on inside of his brain. And Can I ask in that moment when the cashier said that, like, what did you do? Because I probably would have either punched her or started crying. Yeah. But we're from Minnesota. We're from Minnesota. So we go, okay. And then we walk and out walk to away. car and we ball. And then we start cussing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I had heard something a couple weeks back that, and I'm sure we've, I've heard it before, but that our kids are circles living in a square world. Like this world is not built for our children which I think is beautiful because it shows how resilient they are. However, when every person is looking at you and we're doing the best we can to fit our, whether it's a behavioral or, you know, medical or physical, like trying to fit our circle kids in this square world. And they're judging us. Cause I even now at, at five with Sela when we're out and about and I'm like, she doesn't look like a baby anymore. And she is whining she cannot make it through church. We are in and out. It's very disruptive. And I'm like, what 
I am now starting to feel judged because she's nonverbal at five. Whereas at two, she was just like there, like she didn't do anything. And so I totally feel you and I feel for other parents. And I think it's just a really good thing to check in with yourself, whether you have a disabled child or not, like you, you still don't know what that other person's going through. So just trying to have empathy for their situation. Yeah. And especially what you mentioned about like when they get older, I noticed that like even so much this last year as Max transitioned to middle school, kids were nice. They've all, they still have, they're always been nice, like super kind. Um, we haven't really had too many issues, which is great. But as they get older, like the stuff he's, they used to be cute. isn't cute anymore, you know? Yeah. So that is hard. Like that transitional time too. You're right. It's when they're little and babies are like, well, it's so cute. And then it's like, it's like mm-hmm. cute when they're 10 and they're throwing a temper tantrum when we're at the cabin with family because they're so out of sorts because things are different. And yeah. so they don't know how to deal with it. So he like has this temper tantrum and starts yelling at his dad and everyone just thinks he's like this terrible kid who's yelling at his dad. And we're like, no, he just needs, he needs to go away. Like he needs to get, like he just hasn't had any alone time for like three days. Like right. me too. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, like but, we just respond differently with our temper tantrums. We know we mm-hmm. like pull ourselves in a different room and we just like yeah. reconnect and like, okay, take a breath. But when and, a two-year-old's having that ten- temper tantrum, it's yeah. like, oh, but when a 10-year-old is, it's not. Right. It's, so well. then you have Andrew. Mm-hmm. And Andrew has more of a physical disability, so to speak. Yes. So I would say with Max's diagnosis, it didn't bring on like so much trauma for me. I was more of like a learn as you go type of process. I feel like with Andrew, we were just like hit in the face with the truck. Like <laughs> from 20 weeks on, like I, it was the worst pregnancy ever because for 20 weeks, all I did was worry about if I was going to have a baby to bring home or not from the hospital because the perinatologist didn't even know. They couldn't tell us what was wrong. So we didn't know if like he was going to live or not. We couldn't like, what do you tell your siblings at home? Like bringing a baby home or not bringing a baby home. We didn't tell anybody because we didn't know what to tell people. Yeah. So people would constantly come up and be like, Oh, I bet you're hoping you have a girl. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, just a baby would be great. <laughs> yeah. Did you, you know? tell family or did you not even tell we family? We did tell like our parents and siblings. Um, the cleft lip and palate was pretty, that's an easier thing to explain. Um, but we just didn't know how to explain the other stuff because we didn't know. So, you know, when you're in with the, I don't know if you've ever experienced, like when you do the perinatology and the ultrasounds and then you talk to like the geneticist and the geneticist asks you if you want to keep your baby the same day that they just scanned you and you mm-hmm. found out five minutes ago that there's something else wrong. And then they ask you that. And then you're just like, how do you even go on from there? I, I don't like, you know, you just, and then you leave and you walk out of the place and you're like, what just happened? I don't even yeah. know what happened. Mm-hmm. So with Benji, we knew going in, like before we decided to have a second kid, we were like, we have to be okay with having a second disabled child. And we got to the place where we were okay with it. We thought, I mean, we were, but like, I mean, are you ever okay with having a second child? Never mind taking on this chapter again for us. They were like, okay, well, are you doing your amnio to find out if you're going to terminate? Are you doing your amnio to find out like, what is your, what is your reasoning behind this? And we wanted to do the amnio because a, we wanted to know B we wanted to know so that we could be prepared in our own home, but the medical care that he will need upon birth. I understand that it has to be such a brash conversation, but like, how do we go from, you know, literally 
this question to that question to that question. Okay. See you later. Like you'll have your answers in a couple of weeks. Take care. Uh, (laughs) And I'm just like bawling. My husband's crying. We're walking through the hospital. mm -hmm. Like, and I know it's a hospital. So people cry there, but oh my goodness. And then it was, yeah, it was craziness for the next 18 weeks till he was born, to be honest. Like in the delivery room, Mm -hmm. we had every geneticist, like doctor. I mean, there was probably like 10 people in my delivery room because we just really didn't know. Like it's terrifying and comforting at the same time. Like, yeah. Yeah. And so then when he was born, my doctor found out that he had amniotic bands. Like it was Mm -hmm. like in my, you know, placenta. And what is that? So amniotic band syndrome is when your like second lining of your uterine lining, like the sac the baby is in for some reason, like bursts and these little, it like turns in these little strings. It's around like six to eight weeks and they float around in the amniotic sac. So of course, like they're going to get mostly stuck on the extremities because that's what's moving at that point. And so like they wound around his hands and so his fingers grew together and sort of separate. Um, One wound around his foot and grew, his foot grew like the total opposite way. One around his leg. So it like got stuck into his skin it can be super fatal. Like kids can have them in their face, um, in their stomach. A lot of times that's what miscarriages are caused from. And we don't, you know, you just never know, but yeah, it's strange. It's not like common to be born with that, like survive that mm-hmm. and have just, you know, those small extremities be bothered. So wow. he's blessed. I still feel like I'm dumbfounded because I never went through this conversation of do you want to terminate your pregnancy or not? Oh my God. And I am saying this with the complete understanding that some people, that's the right decision for them. However, they're putting you in a position in one day if like, well, wait, did you want this puppy or not? Like, are you going to bring this puppy home or not? Like, yeah. how do you go from you conceive this child, you're so excited for this child, if this child is a part of your family to like, oh, wait, what do you guys want to do? I mean, they're not perfect quote unquote perfect. and how many times are they wrong like look at Andrew like I just look at him and I'm like you were so wrong on what you thought was wrong with him you know like you were yeah. so off base like I just what if I would have just been like sure like yeah this you know like you know what I mean I would yeah. have never done that but you and can't. I mean I have my feelings on what I would choose to do in my family but like right I feel like the education and the process needs to be very different than it apparently is. I mean, I'm like speechless, you guys. I can't even believe that this is how that goes down. I said from the beginning that with Lorelai, we didn't know anything was wrong until she was born. And with Benji, we had the entire, not the entire pregnancy, but, you know, once we found out, we had the rest of the pregnancy. And we are part of a hospice group and they sent the social worker with me to appointments if I wanted, which was wonderful because she would take notes for me. I could be as present as I could possibly be, which wasn't very present when they're throwing this stuff at you. But she would take all these notes and then send me an email afterwards recapping everything, which was beautiful and brilliant. And I told everybody, I said, this is what parents need who are going through this. You need to send somebody in who is literally just going to take notes because your brain shuts off. And then you walk out and you're like, what the heck just happened? And to have her send me a journal entry of like, you know, here's what was discussed. Here's the plan. And then the doctor said, reach out if you have questions about X, Y, Z. That was so helpful for us because your brain turns off. Like you go into fight or flight mode. And for me, it was always flight. Mm -hmm. I was ready to get out of that office and just 
decompress. I don't know. It's one of the hardest things you have to face is the early part when you, when so much is unknown. If I had to step back in that room, I would lose my mind. (laughs) Seriously. Like I know I would, I'm that type of person. I like to hold everything in and then like one thing triggers me and I like lose my marbles. (laughs) That's just who I am. I can only imagine that, Mm -hmm. that, that would be a trigger for sure. I will never forget that experience. Yeah. When he came out, how long was it that they were able to tell you he's healthy? Um, well, or I mean, did they even view it as healthy? Yeah. Well, when he came out and my doctor said this, I had, I had an excellent OBGYN. When he came out, he was crying and kicking and screaming. And my, my doctor said right away, he's like, he's crying. He's good. You know, they expected him to just be like limp. Um, maybe not, you know what I mean? Like they just didn't know what to expect but when he cried and kicked they were like my doctor kind of was like I just knew so they took him like took him right away they were like checking him all out and stuff they were like telling me like oh we don't know if he has an anus like we don't like all this weird stuff that like they were like trying to come up with and finally my OBGYN like yells he's like you guys come over here and like I had delivered the placenta and it had amniotic bands in it Mm. so I mean, right then and there, it was like, oh, well, I guess we can stop searching for all these things that are wrong with your baby. Here's your baby. <laughs> oh, then, wow. Like, see later, you later on, have fun. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I could see his little, like, I should show you guys a picture of his little hand that was like this one little nubby, like, hanging off and all the other ones connected. And he was just like laying on me, this little nubby. And I was like, oh my God, I don't even care. You just love, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. all those things that you were worried about that you were like, oh my God, what if this, what his hands is going to look like monster, you know, like all these pictures you look up on Google and his mouth was wide open because he had that big cleft lip with the huge smile. And it was like, oh my God, you're just perfect. Like, I don't even, it doesn't matter. Oh, it's like, I'm going to you know? cry right now. <laughs> yeah, here we go. Here we but go. Just, you know, it's like all that stuff just, it doesn't matter anymore. It just, it just melts away. You just don't, it's your kid. We want to discuss how people handle the differences. However, mm-hmm. I want you to have a moment to a mom who may be 25 weeks pregnant and is going through all of these appointments and all of these scary moments and thoughts what would you tell her? Oh my gosh. You're going to love your baby no matter what. Like it doesn't matter. You're going to make me sad now. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And I think all of us can agree with that. Like I remember laying in the hospital room when they said something is wrong with Lorelai. We don't know what, but something is wrong. She has brain damage. She has da-da-da-da-da. And I remember laying there, and I was just sobbing because they dropped that bomb on me. Like, I mean, that was February. She was due in April. Little did we know she'd be here two days later. But (laughs) I now look back, and I'm like, I would give anything to live this. You know, like, she was the purest, happiest human I've ever met in my entire life. And to moms listening that may be early in this journey, like there are hard days. We are not making light of that, but <laughs> yeah, they can also be very beautiful and try mm-hmm. not to let the fear overpower the experience. Right. And always remember, I feel like 
you don't realize how equipped you will be. You are coming from this place of the unknown, never have walked this path before. You will be equipped for the journey that you're about to embark on. So trust yourself, trust your partner, trust your support community network. Like you will be equipped. And so you can just soak in everything that is perfect and beautiful about your child and about this journey. And when you say you will be equipped, it's so true. Like the moment that baby is born, you become like this super advocate. Like you become, you know more than like the nurses that were in the hospital, they had had very few babies with cleft lips born. And within, you know, like a day, I felt like I knew more, <laughs> more about what my baby needed to eat than they did. You know, it's like you just, you become this, like. You just innately know. I will say I did not innately know. I was terrified. My kid was born two months early, two and a half months early. I was terrified. I knew nothing. I had never even changed a diaper before Lorelai. So like I was knowing that I was going into motherhood very green. But And that be, might be the first child versus the fourth. Like if you were born first, I yes. probably would have felt more like you do. Yeah. Yes. And so if there's a mom who is listening who is like, I don't feel that way, <laughs> you will be okay too. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. all got it. Don't worry. Yeah. I did but put the diaper on that. backwards the first time. The yeah. the nurse was like, you know, you put the diaper on wrong. And I was like, oh. Did you never okay. babysit when you were younger? I did, but not babies. Like I didn't, oh. they were like humans that walked and talked and stuff. And yeah, I come I from a family of seven kids. So I had a little like, no, <laughs> not much. Now, can you talk a little bit about, how your friends and family or people in school, how it's been different with your older son having the intellectual disability and your younger son having the physical disability. Have they been treated differently? Have they faced different things because of it? As a mom, have you treated them differently? Like, how has that been? With Andrew, he went through all the medical trauma. So, since he's been born, we were down at Gillette Children's Specialty in St. Paul, Minnesota here, weekly. For four months, we went down every week. And you live like an hour and a half away from there. Yeah, which is actually a blessing because we met people that would go to this clinic like we were from North Dakota and South Dakota. Like, wow. crazy. Um, that they, like, they would drive these crazy amount of hours for this. So we were down there every week. And then um, he probably had like nine medical procedures, like surgeries, in that first year, all different dealing with, I mean, we, we saw a hand specialist, foot specialist, um, plastics, orthodontics. And so he had a lot of that medical trauma and dealt with a lot of the physical things, you know, arms and casts. Where Max never had that medical trauma, he had more of like the social world around him, him trying to deal with that and the input he gets back from that. And I feel like that's kind of, you know, like a whole that's so different. Kids would never come up to Max and be like, why are you screaming right now? But they might come up to Andrew and say, what happened to your face? Um, and that's kind of how adults deal with, you know, kids, we say kids, but that's kind of the same thing with adults. Mom would never come up to me and say, why is your kid having a temper tantrum right now? But I have had parents come up to me at a baseball game and say, what happened to your son's leg? 
because he had like this Z plasty like scissors stitch around where they tried to release and it looked funny, you know. People are more willing to talk about the physical things than they are about something they can't see. Does that make sense? Do you wish for one or the other? Do you wish they would ask more about Max or do you wish they would ask less about Andrew? Or just don't talk to us. (laughs) (laughs) Just leave us alone. (laughs) To be honest, I... I thought I would be okay with the physical stuff, but when Andrew was growing through all of that and people would come up that I didn't know, like strangers we'd see at the haircut place or the park and just ask me like, what happened to his leg? I, that would kind of offend me. I'm not going to lie. Like, and I don't know if it really offended me or if it just felt sad about it. So that triggered me to all of a sudden I'd get emotional. And instead of being sad, I would get mad. Diane, can I ask you, do people, because you know we don't leave the house very much, do people ever come up to you and say, why is she in a wheelchair? You know, it was really interesting. We were at church last weekend and two elderly people came up to me the same day and it was very sweet. I was not offended, but they were like, can I ask you? And then they kind of paused because they don't know how to phrase the question. And then they said, what's wrong with her? You know, I feel like it's like a little bit of a cringeworthy question just because of mm. how it comes out. But yet I'm like, what would I want them to say? Like, how how do I want them to phrase this differently? And frankly, I mean, these people had to have been in their 80s, you know? Yeah. And it was simply because they were trying to say, one of the guys was like, I have a daughter in a wheelchair that's in her 50s. I'm going to pray for you guys because I, I know like how beautiful they are, but how much work it is. And I was just like, wow, when I allow myself not to well, to try, I'm not going to say I'm not offended sometimes, but when I open myself up to those types of things, that's also what I can get. And then this other woman had a granddaughter that had autism and she was just like, they're beautiful and whatever. But it's interesting because like when I think about going to kindergarten roundup, the kids are really curious, right? And Sayla's kind of as outgoing as she can be. She's kind of like, I'm here and like waving herself down the hall. And like, you know, she's like, I'm a queen and kids see it and they're curious and they see her light up wheels. But the parents are the ones that are kind of like tucking them into their shoulder. Like, Mm -hmm. and I think it's out of, don't point, don't point. Yes. Mm -hmm. It's out of general. Like, I don't want to make, I don't want to be rude or maybe I don't really know what's going on over there. So like, let's just tuck you in and not make eye contact type of thing. Um, so it's really, I've found it to be generational and, and kids are like, why is she in a wheelchair? How come she doesn't talk? And I love it. I'm like, here, I'm going to get down on your level and let's talk about it. But like, we're going to talk with her because I want to show you how she communicates differently. Um, so yes, people do, but I wouldn't say like often in the mall or the grocery store, people are like, disgusted asking like, Ooh, what's wrong with her? You know? Yeah. And Which you can I do tell appreciate. when the tone is a little different, you can tell, yes. you know? Yes. And I also think like once you remove, once you're removed from the trauma, like now that his surgeries have kind of taken a pause, we'll go back at it again here in a couple of years. But I feel like my level of anxiety and like the trauma surrounding it, I'm kind of like removed a little bit from that. So yeah. I feel like I would be more open yes. to that now than Absolutely. I was when it was like face planted in the dirt with it. You right. know, like I, and sometimes I think too, like you understand more and you're comfortable with where you're at. There was a point where I didn't really know how to answer. Like, well, we don't know what's wrong with her. We don't, I don't know. And I don't know how I feel about it. And how am I going to get from point A right. to point B? I'm not really sure. So when you ask me to explain all this stuff to you, 
it gives me anxiety where now I'm like, let me roll it off my tongue because I am really comfortable as where we're at with the, you know, with our family and how we work. And so there's a lot of dynamics I think that go into a simple question like that and how you feel about it. Kimberly, you had told me before in the little pre-interview that you were a special education teacher. And I think this is a great segue here because you said, I didn't know what I didn't know. And now you are no longer a teacher. You are baking and staying on with your tribe of boys and you're experiencing this quote unquote hands-on. What intrigued you about becoming a special ed teacher? I was from a family of seven kids, I said, and um, my youngest brother has epilepsy and he had special needs in school. And I watched my mom go through all of that as an outsider because I was, it was not my child. I was just a sibling and he was I think he's like 11, 12 years younger than me because we have seven and I'm the, one of the oldest. So I just kind of saw that from the outside. It, so that kind of gauged my interest. Um, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. And so I just went into that area because I kind of fell in love with it. Obviously, there was a reason, right? <laughs> Using all that knowledge now. But um, as a teacher, and we can say this even as not a special ed teacher, after you have kids, oh my. <laughs> <laughs> You just feel so silly for any advice you ever tried to give any parent before you had children. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, definitely, there's this thing called empathy. And I feel that until you have lived the situation yourself, you just have to assume that you are clueless. I never would have felt this way before. Um, I always think like, oh, I could kind of maybe know, like, I know about that, you know, autism. Oh, I know about ADHD. Um, I know about kids who need speech. And until you are submersed and live something, you just, there's no way that you can understand. You can be the most empathetic person in the world. (laughs) And I just feel like you just don't, you don't feel it. Like you don't know it. You don't live it. And having that like knowledge now, I always think like when someone's going through something, I'm like, I can give you sympathy. I can empathize with you, but I, there's no way I can feel how you feel right now. It's just impossible. But some people like before you go through something like that, some people like don't understand. I don't know. Is that, do you get what I'm trying to say here? It's kind of hard to. Absolutely. Even within our own disabled community, I think right. a lot of times I find myself thinking, oh my gosh, like that person's doing X, Y, Z or, you know, but I'm not in their house. I don't know what that mom, I, y'all don't know that Benji was up at three 30 this morning going all done. Like you don't know the reason I haven't brushed my hair is because I've been up for a full day already. Yeah. And, you know, I just try to always step back and go, even when I think I know, I don't know what that person, I don't know if that person is struggling with depression, anxiety on top of taking care of her disabled children. It's a lot. So yeah, I think as a special ed teacher, then you can be the greatest special ed teacher that there is, but having not lived that in your own personal life, I think it's really hard to understand sometimes where parents are coming from. Like, why do I walk into an IEP meeting and my heart is like racing and my face is red? And I thought, I'm like, I got this. This is good. There's no problems. And why, when I step in that room, do I feel like I just ran a marathon? Mm-hmm. You know, and unless you have been through that on the other side of the table, it's hard as a teacher to understand, like, why is that parent reacting like that right now? Well, 
<laughs> because their blood pressure is about to like put them under, you know? Yeah. It's just things that you don't think about when you are a teacher. You just, and it's not, it's not at fault. It's not a fault. It's not saying, oh, you're not good at your job because you can't, you just haven't lived it. So it's just a completely different situation. I also think that there has to be a level of kind of like with nursing, like you cannot cross that line because you have to do this day in, day out. And I almost wonder if you know too much, like, is it too hard to a point? Harder, And you have a classroom of 15 kids or whatever, but if you cross that line... I can't imagine having 15 Benjis in a room right now. (laughs) Please, no. Like, love the kid, but I only need like one or two of them. But if they cross that that line, like, do you have to keep it professional to a point? Yeah. And having, so my husband is a sixth grade science teacher and he has Maxwell in class this year, which has been the greatest blessing. Like to have him there when this huge transition to middle school and everything. But so I know the special ed teacher really well, (laughs) you know, like we know like all of the administrators, you know, it's just, so that's a different dynamic too. It's sometimes nice. And then sometimes what if, if you have a problem then it's sometimes not nice because, Mm -hmm. you know, is there, I don't even know if this is going to be a question you can answer, but is there some advice being now you being on both sides of the coin to come together, to be able to communicate effectively. Cause I know as moms, we kind of get like in mama bear mode. Oh my I mean, I find, and we're just in kindergarten, right? So I am still, <laughs> I'm still learning how to effectively communicate what I want and not feel offended that they're mm-hmm. not just giving us what I think she deserves. Like, why do I have to ask you this every week? Why do I have to do this? Why do I? And so is there a piece of advice that you could give for parents that are starting out in the school system to be able to effectively communicate whether they're concerned that, you know, like I'm kind of concerned I might burn bridges or like, what if I am too confrontational with the teacher about getting what I want and she's offended that I don't think she's doing a good job, you know? Yeah. A couple things there. Um, as a teacher, you know, like it's not your kid and you like Sue said, like there's a lot of kids you're working with, you know, so it's not like you're just worried about one. But as a mom, I really think that you do need to be strong about what you're advocating for. Kind of like the squeaky wheel gets the, you know, like you, (laughs) you hate to do it. um, But if you don't effectively communicate what you want, they won't know. Mm -hmm. There's no way of knowing. Like I, like you have a parent who wanted this, but they never said it. So you didn't know. Um, secondly, what's written down on that paper, not important. I feel like that's how it kind of go about things. The paperwork is not for you. <laughs> it's not really, you mean the IEP paperwork, not really for you, not really for them. It's for state, it's for funding. So for me, it was more effective. Like, what are you doing? Like, I want to hear Like, what are you actually doing? Like, I see what's written down here, but. I don't know, maybe I'm jaded because I know the system. I've been in the system. <laughs> but that isn't like, I don't care if like three-fourths of the time he's going to say this, 80% when a peer talks to him. You know, like, I just want to know, like, does he have friends in the classroom? When this kid talks to him, does he communicate back and forth? Like, is that appropriate? That's the kind of stuff. So, like, emails, 
you know, like emails because they don't, they don't have to answer that at a certain time. I always felt like emails were so much easier as a teacher, like to get back and forth versus like a phone call or an actual like in-person meeting. And who can effectively communicate when you're like in this fight and flight mode when you go into an IEP meeting? I feel like you have to be defensive. Like you just become defensive. Your heart is racing, like I said, and anything that's said, you just take so personally. Mm-hmm. Like I just feel like, how do you effectively communicate when you're in that mode? I, I never had a success with it, really. I always go in thinking of all these things, and then I leave and I go, what just happened? I mm-hmm. don't know what just happened. We're starting this, well, this special ed parent advisory council within our community. And oh, we have one at our school, yeah. Yeah. Like I, we don't really have an active one. And I'm like, I want to collaborate with the teachers, but I can't find the words to help them understand what I'm feeling. And I want and need as a parent, but like, that's what I think it's going to take is them. You know, I'll never forget when Selah got her first piece of equipment and we were in the birth to three. So they came to our house. It was the very first time I ever saw my child with metal all around her, holding her up. And the teachers were all like, oh my gosh, she's so happy. And I sat there like blinking and tears just started rolling down my face. And it was just a shock simply. But now I'm, you know, friends with the woman that was her teacher. And she's like, that was the day I went back to the school and said, we need to remember how this feels for the parent for the first time. You know, like as educators, you're in work mode and I don't really expect you to be in any other mode. But I also, like you said, you're in fight or flight. You have so many emotions going on. You want the best for your child. And sometimes you don't feel like they understand what it really feels like deep down to see your child have any, you know, have difficulties such as that. It's just a shock for the first time to see that. So I am hoping to be able to collaborate really well with teachers to be able to communicate those types of things so they can have a little bit more empathy and kind of get a glimpse inside of our world. Because then I think the outcome for all of us will just be easier and better. I remember this is so funny when you say that, like sitting at an IEP meeting, we had, do you have DAPE, Adaptive FIAD? Yeah. Or SELA, do you have that? Okay, so mm-hmm. I don't know if it's called something different in no. at different states. That's Adaptive FIAD. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I remember them, Max has always had a hard time with gross motor. His dad's like a three-sport athlete in high school, you know, like <laughs> super into sports. Max hated sports, couldn't throw a ball. They set a goal for him on his Adaptive FIAD was to like throw a ball. So I think for about four years, they constantly were like, well, he's still working on his overhand throw. I finally, we finally had to be like, what if he never throws a ball? It's okay. Can we just like move on? Yep. (laughs) Can we move on from here? But if you don't know, you can ask for those things. If you don't know, you can Mm -hmm. say, yeah, we're not interested in that. Mm -hmm. I feel like parents feel like they need to be told it's like, they have to do everything the school says and you don't, you know, yeah. you don't have to just go along with whatever they're doing. Like I didn't think speech was appropriate for my 11 year old son anymore to be pulled out in a one-on-one setting when he's trying to work on social skills. So mm-hmm. finally this year at his IEP meeting, I said, can we just not do speech? I said, he gets frustrated because he has to leave class for 20 minutes and that's hard transition for him and he's missing something and he's not getting study hall. And that's really hard. He can't get his work done. I said, that's more beneficial for him to not be in speech and be in the regular yeah. classroom. Like, can we just not do that? But I don't think parents know sometimes they can ask for that stuff. Yeah. Well, and I would think in my, my lack of understanding, I would be afraid that if I said, can we take him out of speech? Like, 
is that completely off the table of ever putting him back in would be my fear. So I think that, again, having open conversations about this would be my concern. What would you guys say? No, I get that. Because with Andrew, he had birth through three, kind of like you said, Sayla did at home. And they dismissed him at age three because he didn't need the OT and the PT, you know, and, and I was so nervous about it. Cause I was like, are you sure? <laughs> something where you can't do right. Like something like, are you sure this is okay? Cause I was so like, they were my lifeline for like those mm-hmm. couple of years. And I was mm-hmm. like, now you're just going to go. And what if he needs you again? Yeah, that was, that was. Well, and I used to work for a pediatric therapy company. And one of the things that the owner and I talked about often was how as adults, other than like, My mental health therapy, that's going to last forever. Let's be real. But like if you, (laughs) I keep telling my therapist, she's got quite the job security with me. But (laughs) You guys are my therapy today. (laughs) (laughs) But like if you get in an accident and you can't walk or something, like our physical therapy is supposed to last until we don't need it anymore. And when our kids start like Lorelai and Benji straight out of the NICU with physical therapy, that is my lifeline for them. But at a certain point, they either don't need it or they are not progressing. And it's stuff that we as parents can work on at home. And I kept telling my former boss, like, you have to understand how it feels as a parent that you are pulling the rug out from under us. Like, I understand that we, we don't need therapy if we don't need therapy. But it's more than just therapy. It's a lifeline. It's an outlet. Mm-hmm. It's helping us keep our kids going. It's just hard. And sometimes I feel like our first physical therapist, my husband reminded me that when we went down for like kind of diagnosis day or whatever, she was on the phone with me and I was like, okay, Tanya, what questions am I asking? Like, how do I word it? What do I not let go? I mean, she was on the phone with me and I'm like, I have through the years had to realize that even though I love a therapist, it may not be the best for Sayla. They're like my people. And so That's like when I, was I like, get don't, in, don't go. I like when you guys come because I just want to talk to you. Totally. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like you're Who my mental Andy? health therapist. I need birth through three right now. <laughs> <laughs> Totally. So that's another, like, if you are in it and you're like, I love these therapists or you get a new therapist, you don't know if you love them trying to find, I've had to learn, like trying to find, are they really good for the kids? Even though I don't feel as maybe a connection with them, or am I like latched onto them? Like a monkey, like, don't leave me because I need you. (laughs) I imagine you like holding onto their leg as they're walking out of the door. You're like, no, (laughs) I'll buy you presents. I swear. (laughs) And that's funny. And like with Andrew, this is another thing I brought up to my birth or three he had what I would consider so much medical trauma and his like emotional and, you know, they test the emotional intelligence or social intelligence and all of that stuff on their little scales to dismiss you. And they're like, well, his emotional intelligence is so high. And I'm like, I feel like that's so heightened because of like all of the medical trauma that he went through and his behaviors are so different, not like enough for, you know, therapy or whatever, but Whereas like Max never had that medical trauma. And so it's so interesting to see. I, I, I said to them, do you guys have books for me on like how to deal with medical trauma? Because there is so much out there for, and I, it, there should be for, you know, like physical trauma and things that kids go through that are, you know, horrific. 
but there's nothing really out there for like moms and kids and how to deal with all of that medical trauma because I, you can't tell me it doesn't exist. Like he's, everyone always used to say, Oh, don't worry. He'll be fine. He was so little. He won't even remember those nine surgeries he went through. He won't remember that he wore casts on both of his hands and couldn't use his hands for like six weeks at a time. You know, it's like, no, he does because we had to take away his nook when he had his mouth fixed because he couldn't suck on something. We had to take away, like, then he sucked on, you know, then he did other things and then we covered up his hands and then we took away this and we took away that. And to just say that there's no lasting trauma from that is just absurd to me, <laughs> you know? And like people just like, just keep going on. He's fine now. Yeah. And I'm like, no, thing, there are things he does that I can see that he's not fine now. Yeah. I don't know. And it's, you know, the medical trauma for the mom, the medical trauma for the siblings. Like, how do you explain this to siblings too, which we can't dive into today. There is way yeah. too much already <laughs> talking about, but the medical trauma side of it, even, I think I told you, and it happened just downstairs. Like I said to my mom, I was like, Benji was up at three 30 going all done, all done. And I'm like, honey, buck up. Like, like you, you have been through a lot. Like I get it. You, I forget that he is a two year old boy. And I want to be like, after the year we've had losing your sister, all the medical stuff you go through, like you should know better. And I forget because I think we are in this medical mode so frequently. And I just expect more of him. I don't, especially at three 30 in the morning, but that's yeah. neither here nor there. I hear typical children wake up at three and tap you on the shoulder. Is that- <laughs> mine, mine wakes up every night and yells for me every night still. And he's going to be five, <laughs> but it's because of that. He, he needs to seek comfort. Like mm-hmm. that's his thing. And like, so I don't have the heart to be like, no, figure it exactly. out. I, <laughs> I will say, I, I do not tell Benji to buck up in my mind. <laughs> I'm telling Benji to buck up. He was in the NICU for 27 days or so. So in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to always snuggle my kids. If they want to be snuggled, I didn't get to snuggle Lorelai for the first 77 days of her life. And he didn't get those baby snugs. So if he wakes up at three and he wants Benji snugs, he gets Benji snugs. But and then you just suffer the consequences. As I sip sip my second cup of coffee today. Uh, Yeah, we've all got everybody. Hold your mugs up. Cheers! Cheers, My second already today. Okay, Kimberly. Well, you are a um, many time listener. And you know what comes at the end of each episode. So, Kimberly, what gives you hope? Um, I do know what comes. And I've been thinking about this a lot, like every week when I'm baking and I'm listening to your podcast, which I consider my therapy. What gives me hope is that I have, and I'm going to get sad. I have an amazing mom, like the most amazing mom. And she grew up and she mothered in a world with a special needs son when nobody cared. Nobody talked about it. She had to keep all of that to herself and learn how to deal with that in a school where people just didn't talk about things like this. And the fact that we can sit here and have this conversation and feel validated that there are other people who are dealing with the same things we are, who are 
powering through and who are doing these amazing things for our children. That gives me so much hope. Oh my gosh. Sorry. (laughs) No, that is so beautiful. This is one of those moments where like, I don't expect to cry. And then like stuff I hold in for years, like just comes out like this. I'm sorry. (laughs) Don't ever apologize. That was beautiful. And cheers to your mama. Nice work. Kim's mom. (laughs) Well, thank you for being here and for sharing your story because I know, I know as we all sit here teary eyed that like you said, the fact that the three of us can connect three pretty much strangers who are living our own lives in different parts of the country can sit here and connect and cry and drink coffee together (laughs) and feel seen like that's why we're doing this and your story is going to touch many people Mm -hmm. it was beautiful thank you thanks for doing this guys i know you have lots on your plate so what did you guys think i love her and kind of want to be best friends with her i say that about every guest though you guys know that one day we are all going to get together and have one big massive medical mom best friend party and we are going to eat cake pops and sip coffee and probably wine but I digress Kimberly thank you so much for being here today this conversation could have gone in a hundred different directions whether that be more about school or more about the intellectual versus physical disabilities or siblings or IEPs or oh my gosh I could have talked to you for forever so thank you for being here this is Susan and I have to run downstairs and make lunch that does not involve cake pops because I am trying to lose some of my post past child grief what is the my bereavement weight I think it's bereavement weight is what I'm trying to say see you next week Hey guys, real quick, I just want to add, if you're new here, or if you're not, and you have skipped this part of my exit every week, I just want to add that we are a really cool group, and I think you fit in really well here. Uh, You can sit with us, absolutely, any day of the week, you can sit with us, and you don't have to wear pink or green or whatever color. That being said, we'd love for you to join us in the When Autumn Comes Society on Facebook, Also, if you could like our podcast on whatever platform you're listening to us on, that would be stellar. If you could share our podcast with your social media crowd, that would be awesome because guys, we really want to grow and help other medical families that may be going through journeys where they feel isolated and we want them to know that they're not alone and we're all here 